Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. How do we transform the world? Perhaps it begins in many ways, and one of those being through a new paradigm of how we envision education for our children and our children's children. What does this shift look like? What could the profound impact be for our world? Those questions and more answered today on this episode with Philip Moore, Gabriella Masala, and Solomon Masala. Philip has been the Upland Hills School Director for the last 40 plus years. Upland Hills School is a Michigan independent school located in northern Oakland County on 35 acres of woods and rolling meadows in Oxford, Michigan. Gabriella Masala is a facilitator, consultant, and life artist. Gabriella has been steeping in universal wisdom teachings, contemplative expressive arts, and energy medicine for over 20 years. As a facilitator and consultant, her approach is holistic, compassionate, and integrative. Her programs catalyze breakthroughs and maximize emergent intelligence. Her husband, Solomon Masala, is a facilitator, trainer, and builder of teams with 25 years of delivering excellence and rocking the world of organizational development. These three are coming together this summer at Hollyhock Leadership Learning Center to further discuss how changing the paradigm of education could make huge change on our planet. We're in the midst of what Gabriella refers to as the great turning, a time for great potential, for great awareness and paradigm shift to emerge and take place on a huge level on our planet. Join us for this exciting episode when I catch up with these three today on The Spark. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. So let's talk about Hollyhock. It's a beautiful place. It's on an island called Cortez Island. And it's uh, a magical island in so many ways. The standing ones, the trees and the, and the edge of the ocean and all of the natural, wild, environmental aspects of it create an ambiance and a learning environment where you're activated in the highest possible way. Some of them artists and musicians and writers, others people just who love that kind of life. And Hollyhock itself is a leadership potential uh, kind of incubator for people to really lean deeply into the consciousness of how to shift the paradigm from whether it's something having to do with yoga or whether it's a council of all beings or whether it's, as in our case, the transformation of childhood education and what it's like to experience a love-based education. We've been given the opportunity to do that for the past two summers. This is summer number three coming. And it's one of those things that speaks to the very heart and essence of my connection with Solomon and Gabriella, because this is what we love to do more than anything else. Essentially, summer camp, and instead of it just being about fun, it's about deepening bonds 
and about learning from each other in ways that are impossible usually when we're distracted by our everyday life. And then paradigm shifting together, which is this fancy two words that are very difficult to explain or understand. But when you're actually in the process of doing it, you realize it means creating deep bonds with others within the natural world context in order to, to take the consciousness of our planet to a, another place, a place of deeper connection. And I think that's all of our goals here. So I'm excited to have all three of you on the show because I think that's the shift that we're all involved in, in ushering in right now. So as paradigm shifters, Gabriella and Solomon, how did you all get involved with Phil? <laughs> I'm laughing because of the beauty of that question. So I got involved with Phil because of divine order, truly. And I'm not, not making that up, but Phil and I are cousins and blood cousins. And so the beautiful experience of a family connection that has these mysterious weaves in it brought us together through the power of a family reunion that happened when I was, I think, 14, 13, somewhere around that, that age. And that beauty and that sense of connection to the land that Phil described that happens at Hollyhock, which, by the way, immediately envelops and embraces you as you get onto that island. We'll talk more about that, I hope, because that's also part of the power of paradigm shift is feeling it in the body. So the experience of this family reunion, talk about feeling it in the body, there was an immediate love connection rekindling when I met Phil in person. And then we, my brother and I, began visiting every summer to the place where Upland Hills School is and spending time there, and which is on this beautiful acreage also connected to Upland Hills Farm. And it became holy land for me. It became a sacred place. It was the place where I understood the depth of what earth connection means. It was the place that I understood what it means to live and to endeavor to live in conscious community. And then to have a school and bring children in, into that context, that's how Phil and I got involved. <laughs> so I got to be there during the summers. I moved in nearby to finish my undergraduate studies. I was one of the first student teachers at Upland Hills School. So I got my teaching degree, did my student teaching there, and was part of the enrichment faculty during my time there. And so those were the doing elements of it. But the heart of who we are as an amazing family has been a gift. Phil has been not just a cousin, but a dear, sweet, amazing mentor of mine. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. Nobody told me that secret. <laughs> so I just think that is wonderful. And for those people that don't know what Upland Hills School is, Phil, could you also tell us just a little bit about the school that you founded and this wonderful thing that Upland Hills School is about? Sure. You, the easiest way to say it is, is, is that everything that we do has a we to it, right? <laughs> so it was co-founded and it was almost like walking into a movie set that had already been established. You know, there were teachers, there were students, and we had just returned 
Karen and Nina and I. Nina was at that time six years old. We had just returned from traveling in Europe and North Africa for a year and had heard about it when we were living in Spain. So we walk on to this amazing movie set of a new experiment that's just begun literally four weeks before that. And then it ends up becoming, you know, the place that we are still at 48 years later. And essentially, it grew out of the 60s and a lot of educators writing amazing books and being connected to things like Summerhill that was written by A.S. Neal. But there were lots of writers, Jonathan Kozel in the 70s, who were really 60s and 70s, really saying something's wrong with the way we are doing education. And here are these ideas. And here are these experiments like Summerhill that began in 1927. So there was a really huge and vibrant community that was thinking, wow, we've got to do something. Because our generation was about building, you know, and, and creating community and living collectively. And so we walked onto a set where that was at the boom. And then the bust began pretty close after our first year or second year. So there were maybe, I would say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,200 free schools that began during 1968 to 1972. And by the time we get to the end of the 70s, there was probably less than 4% left. So there was this flowering of something. We called them free schools. Every time a label occurred, we tried to slip out of the label, but, you know, just like hippie, good luck, you know. So, so the school is still flourishing 48 years later, and it's a school that's based on love which is the best way for me to be able to talk about it because when I wrote the book, The Future of Children, I really had to have a very concise way of saying what's different about this kind of education. And clearly from the very beginning it was, this school is based on love, not on fear. So, this wonderful school already sounds like it was a paradigm shifter from what people had been doing in traditional education. Before I jump ahead too far, because I want to start talking about what would this transformational education look like, I want to ask Gabriella, how did you hook up with this gang in Hollyhock and become a part of this? Great. Well, I am the honored beloved of Solomon. So we met and my goodness, we knew we have a life adventure to unfold together. And and so I married into this clan. <laughs> so, Lucky for us. So Phil and I also have a really beautiful, invisible thread that has brought us together for, I feel, lifetimes. You know, he's the quality of being like Solomon and like you, really, Stephanie, where I feel like we, we chose to be here in form in this life together for this moment, for what is unfolding, for what is emerging in our collective, for how our hearts, our love, our beauty and brilliance and gifts are collaborating to be part of an emerging consciousness, right? So this is what brought me to my marriage with Solomon. 
that feeling of, oh, I know you, we're here to create together in this life. And then what sparked in me with Phil, beyond including the immediate love and tenderness, is a connection to this lineage of service, of remembrance, of remembering the miracle of life, magic, the mystery, and bringing that into our living and into our service. So that is a place where Phil and I just sparked up and I just fell in love. I can hardly speak. I'm just so excited about just the connections that are here, what you all have created together, and just this shared love that is so palpable. So as you started merging these wonderful souls and ideas together, let's talk about transformational education and what that really looks like. Right now, people are having to do things they've never done with homeschooling in a way they've never homeschooled. And while I know that that can be stressful, it also an amazing opportunity. I keep hearing from friends that are homeschooling right now that I'm able to teach my kids in a whole new way, that they're surrounded in an environment where they're actually supported in love by their parents and opening them up to doing all kinds of other creative activities along with that. And so they're nurturing their children's own strengths. They're nurturing things that really help their children come alive. So I'm curious how this all might weave into that. Well, one of the things I would say is, is, is that the school system that these great educators and leaders in the 60s was rebelling against was the school of the industrial era. And the industrial era, you know, I grew up in Michigan and Detroit. So I was at the epicenter of, okay, here's what school should be about. You sit down and you listen. When the bell rings, you get up and you go and you're in a large institution. And it's not about anything other than the curriculum. It's really broken down into pieces, elements. So the they called it elementary school for a reason. It was already going to be about divide and conquer. It wasn't going to be about context. So here's the first big distinction is, is, is that a new paradigm education is always embedded in context. As a matter of fact, context is far more important than content. And we've been conditioned to believe that content is what's important. So if you're out there and you're doing homeschooling, first of all, you're already in a great context because the parents are always the first educators anyway. When we're fortunate enough to still have one or both parents or to have a step-parent, you know, a beautiful father or a beautiful mother, which is another way of staying, saying step-parent in French, you know. So whatever you might have in your home at this moment, you're way closer to a paradigm shift love-based education than you are if you're in an institution and that there are bells going on, and it's being driven by content, not by context. So that's the first thing that I would say, is that it's already happening. The other thing that I would suggest, if we can remember all the way back to three weeks ago, and realize how busy we must have all been at that time, and how kind of unbusy, except for apparently you and some others, that are still being able to do your work and do it from your home, but when you think about children and parents, I would say 
what I've learned over these five decades is that what a child wants most has nothing to do with a thing. We all think in our consumer-based culture that things are very important. You know, just like we think the curriculum is very important. And really what children would want more than, even if they don't know it, what they want more than anything else is their parents with them. So what we have at this point is really the greatest present that any parent could give a child is presence. Exactly. How about you, Solomon and Gabriella? How do you see transformational education, just to piggyback what Phil said? The first part that comes to me is, again, speaking to context, and that in a love-based context, who I am is naturally enough. Because who I am allows me to just share what my genius is, what my perspective might be, how I see things and understand and process things. In a love-based context, I simply exist, I'm valid, and I'm enough. And with that foundation, then, you know, there's the conversation that comes in around, well, yes, but then what do they learn? <laughs> that's all that's happening. How are they going to manage? How are people going to manage in the real world? And we have actually been homeschooling Talia for the last couple of years. So one of the things that I have become even more aware of in the process of it, but one of the things that I've become really aware of is that it's in a context of love-based education, it's about then also my inspiration to learn how to learn. So I don't have to be afraid that I'm going to miss content because if my natural inspiration is sparked, if my natural sense of, oh, I have a genius and a contribution to this world, if that's sparked, I'm going to figure things out. I'm going to have a delight and an inspiration to learn how to learn. That's a huge part of this paradigm that we're talking about. And the second piece that I will mention is that it's also about feeling it in the body, that it's not about, in the traditional sense, how I'm trying to fill a head with knowledge. It's about what happens when I can feel the fullness of who I am as a being and then feel that happening out on the earth and feel the relationship that I have to the other people and to the other beings that are in my environment, the trees, the ground below me, the animals, the ones that crawl, the ones that fly, feeling my relationship to this, that's a part of the paradigm of love-based education. I got to feel that, which is, by the way, part of what we bring at Hollyhock because it's such a deep, sweet, beautiful, immersive experience that I get to rewire my experience of what it means to connect in authentic community, to nurture myself through natural food, to stand and feel the breeze and the incredible prawn that just flows through me when I just simply stand and look at these gorgeous mountains out in the distance. I was getting this image of, I don't know if you guys all remember, a long time ago, Monty Python, I think this was like in the 80s, 
did this movie, The Meaning of Life. And they had these cartoons where they would stamp children, basically putting them through a conveyor belt. But it had a school that was the conveyor belt. And then they'd get like a stamp, go through, and everybody looked the same. Everything was the same. And so that's part of what I'm hearing you say, Solomon. It's like everybody that's in traditional education, it's like they get the stamp and you're filled with this curriculum, whether it fills your soul, resonates with you or not. This is what's being dictated that you need to learn this. Yes. And, and I want to be careful because I don't want a public school bash. That's not at all what this is about. I also do a lot of work with public school educators in public schools, and there are amazing educators there. It's just that the context starts to dictate what happens in that system. And so the humanity piece starts to get leached out of it. And so we do end up with an experience like you just described, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy and consciousness within that context to keep that humanity and that sense of the heart and the passion and the genius alive. And this is part of what's so exciting is that the context is changing, like it or not. And, and we're right in this pregnant, mysterious, unknown moment right now. So I know that Phil has said this and other elders who I really respect that we can't love what we don't value. And so in the context of transformational education, of the new paradigm of education, we love life. We love the wild world. Mm -hmm. We value sky time. We value taking space to learn how to grow food. And wow, this is not just a good idea anymore. <laughs> and it is a lost art for many, many people in the United States, I'll say, because I know that over 70% of people in the world still get their food from peasant farmers. But that is not the case where we are in Austin, Texas. And so how do we recontextualize what we value in terms of intimate love relationships in having heart-brain coherence as one superpower. That's a natural ability for all of us. That ability to, to tune in and live in compassion and have an emergent we rather than an I consciousness. How to respect and delight and love all species on our global family planet and, and how to play and how to honor and value creativity and spontaneity and mystery as much as we do that logical, linear, analytical aspect of our brains. And the last thing I want to say about this is that the future of children is also the future of all of us and that we as adults have a lot of deprogramming and rewiring to do so that we can meet them in that context. What I love too about what you're saying, Gabriella, is that when children have or are brought up in that context where they're so connected to the earth and they're so connected to other human beings, we usually cannot destroy what we really love. And so if we're thinking about our climate, the earth, ending racism, ending ageism, you know, some of these things where all of a sudden things are valued and loved at such a deeper level because people are connected, these children are connected to those things as part of themselves that it's no longer separate. Yes. And so the experience then is how to take that from a concept to I concretely feel that in my body. 
I connect and I'm in touch with those parts of me that have tended to be armored up. And in this context, I can relax and I can let myself feel and connect. How do I feel in my body? What happens when I'm under these beautiful trees? How do I let myself feel what happens when I'm allowing myself to connect in an authentic way to other people? And that's the kind of experience that we want to share <laughs> and continue to practice ourselves and welcome others into so that we can rewire, as Gabriella says, and as, as Phil often says about rewiring to that new paradigm. Red Cross urgently needs blood and platelet donations and asks healthy donors to schedule an appointment to give during this coronavirus outbreak. Patients are counting on life-saving transfusions. Visit redcrossblood.org. So how do we create this? Anyone can answer this. How do we create this coherent, love-based community that's going to foster this kind of learning environment? How does this work? Well, one of the ways of experiencing it right now in this conversation is that you can sense between all of us that we love each other on some level. What happens when you come together every day, can you imagine this little school here that has a hundred kids, you know, which is very close to where I am, so I'm pointing in a direction, you know, but essentially it's a little walk, a little saunter from here to the school. Can you imagine a place where one of the students wrote, it's always safe and warm in a song that she composed for the school. And that's how it starts. Imagine a place where it's always safe and warm. What she was referring to is what you feel right now, everybody who's listening to this, when you can sense how much we love each other. Now, I don't get to be with Solomon and Gabriella very often. We're trying to do it more and more, but we're still a long-distance relationship. But when you come together, if the entire staff of the school, social distancing apart, when it's when it's another time comes together and we hug each other and we love being with each other and the children see it and it's being modeled it's not being spoken it's not like this is the upland hill school handbook here's rule number one learn to love everybody that's in the school you know because that's the sure way to be a disaster but essentially what they do experience and see is everybody likes being with each other the larger the school has gotten, the more difficult that is. But for the people that are home right now with kids, there's that one ingredient. I'm in a place where people really like each other. Now, if you're parents and you're having some disagreements about things and you're working those disagreements out in front of your kids, well, there's several things to be aware of. One is you're creating a context for what, you know? So you could be having an argument and if you're doing it in front of your kids, well, then they're having that argument whether they want to have it or not. But if you're working with each other and you're really being honest with each other and you're making mistakes and you're realizing that's how we really learn. So 
this is really incredible. And when, when we go to schools and those schools are really saying, here's the curriculum, here are the tests, all the tests questions have right answers and we know all those answers. So you're set up for a totally unrealistic way of living. Questions that are going to be asked that are already you know the answers to, but you don't know them as the student. The teachers know them, right? So in a situation right now, in a homeschooling situation because of what's going on with COVID-19, you have the ability to be really transparent about, oh, I made a mistake. Shouldn't have had that, that argument in front of you. We need to take that offline and do it privately and then come back to you and let you know that this is how much we love you and this is what we learned. And I'm sorry, and you accept my apology. You know, making mistakes is at the center of a contextual education because we're leaning into the unknown all the time. If we're leaning into the unknown, and everybody now can relate to that, even the most conservative elements of our species is now realizing, are you kidding me? This could change this fast for the entire world? You know, I was all prepared for anything. I have the bunker and I have all the food and I have all my money and I have the gold and I have the... None of us were prepared for what's happening right now. So we live in the time of the great unknown. And we live in a period that Joanna Macy calls the great turning. So in this situation, we're all asking questions and learning. And how do you learn? You make mistakes. So those are the two things I would offer. You get to work with the people you love and play with the people you love and you make mistakes. And that's how we learn. That's not the dominant paradigm of education. That brings me to my next question. What are the paradigms or the focus that we do need to shift? As I want to just hop back to something really quickly. What Phil was saying about the way the adults at Upland Hill School connect with each other, it blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really did. As a, as a young adult, right? So I, I moved up there specifically so that I could be more around the school and the community there when it was time for me to, to do my sophomore year of, of college. So I wanted to be connected to the school through Phil and the experience that I had with him and just meeting some of the community peripherally in that time. And then I got to be an enrichment teacher. I would come and, and offer classes and I kind of drove the school bus, and, but getting to be around it as one of the faculty members as a young adult, and then there'd be these staff meetings, right? And so what I witnessed in those staff meetings were people disarmoring their hearts, not being perfect, and having issues with other adults where they were just being honest about, this is how I'm seeing it, and here's how it's impacting me, and what can we do to find partnership in this process? And to me, that was the first time, you know, I was like, this is supposed to be a school. We're supposed to be talking about <laughs> curriculum. <laughs> and here they were committed to the depth of the relationships. And that blew my mind. So I think if you ask your question now, I have a point to make with that question. <laughs> So then taking it to that next place of what are the paradigms, the consciousness, the awarenesses, the focus that we need to shift, what do you see that as? 
So I think along with what I was sharing there, part of it is doing the work that I need to do internally so that I can disarmor, so that I can have the courage to be vulnerable, so that I can let myself love, laugh, live out loud around other people who are committed to that as well. And that when I make a mistake, I can hear that impact that I've had on others and it comes in a loving way. And the bonding that I've had with these people is such that, yeah, I may put up my defenses at first, but I'm also hearing through and feeling through that to the love that these people have for me. So authentic relating is a huge part of that. But I'd also layer in with it that is also specific to those that are listening now, if they're still homeschooling, how is education shifting? How is life on earth shifting? That a shift in paradigm would include having life at the center of life rather than profit or money or control. It would be the power of love instead of the love of power. It would be honoring and relating with reverence to the earth as a living being with us as a part of it. It would be a contextual shift from separation to wholeness, from I to we, from even inside to outside. So part of what creates a coherent love-based community is having the natural world as a primary teacher, where every day, instead of just in school, perhaps, math and writing, we are also barefoot on the earth, sky time, moving our bodies, in direct, intimate relationship with all of life, not just with our heads. It's a paradigm shift, not just from the head to the heart, but both of those intelligences and all of our other intelligences online. It is a surrender. It's a shift into a paradigm of surrender instead of control. What you said reminded me on Daniel Goldman's breakthrough book of emotional intelligence. He spoke about the greatest predictor of actual success was not your IQ, your intelligence quotient, but your EQ, which is your emotional quotient, your ability to be empathetic, compassionate, to be able to feel into things and people. So the adults are modeling love, that's great, and yet, But you're saying it's learning in so many different ways, learning in so many different levels. So it's not just this intellectual pursuit of academia. Can you speak to that just a little more? If someone's going out into the real world, and I know from interviewing Phil before, there are people that came from Upland School that work for the government in DC and people that work for NASA. So obviously they're getting an education in ways in which they're able to utilize science and mathematics and whatever that is. Can you help clarify that a little bit? How is this the rounded out experience for people who have never heard of a love-based education before? I'll jump in. We are whole beings. And that even as we say out there in the real world, the real world is swept away right now. So what is real and really having an opportunity to reevaluate and revision and reinvent who we are and what the world is that we are learning forward and leaning forward into in this unknown. 
So the academic or intellectual learning is always going to look for measurement and accuracy and analysis. It's what that mental energy can do. But what happens when we're also building up our capacity to tune into our heart's deep knowing and intelligence and guidance, when we're also tapping into our kinesthetic and instinctual knowing, when we are building our capacities as a whole being, so that these youth that you spoke of that went to Upland Hill School, where they were loved into life, where they were connected to their whole being, their whole circuitry was lit up in their brains, their genius was encouraged and loved into being, and then they were able to go out into the world and relate to it in that way. So this is a process of being whole. And I think, again, it's a contextual shift because we have for hundreds of thousands of years been in a societal context of separation and fragmentation and that what we need is on the outside and there is a pursuit of happiness where part of the contextual shift we're talking about that comes from whole being intelligence, it couldn't just come from that analytical mind, says that we have within us all we need to be whole, to be happy for no reason, to learn how to navigate our nervous system as an intelligent, miraculous, complex system, and then to join together and collaborate and co-create as we move into a new reality that we're just going to see emerging as we listen and move forward together. What a beautiful thing to think about that our children and adults as well, that we'd be moving to a place that there's not a pursuit for happiness or love, that it's not external, that actually it's an internal job, that it's found already within us. And so then that can be nurtured. And like you said, then the whole person concept, I can't tell you how many professors and even brain surgeons and CEOs and people that have lived very much in this cerebral part of their body, that our work together was how to learn how to drop into their heart. How do we integrate these two together? So I'm just hearing the power of that. I mean, as a child comes up in the educational realm, to be held in that place where those two things are nurtured And that it is, it's this soulful, amazing experience of life that talk about when you already know your love and you know that your happiness, you are that spark, what in the world could you ignite from there? That is really exciting. Phil, what else? Well, I think Gabrielle actually said the most important piece, which is that whole piece. Because the way that you phrase the question, you can imagine the teachers of Upland Hill School hugging each other and being glad to see each other. And that just feels like some kind of mushy thing that doesn't have any integrity. And it's this cotton candy kind of idea. So that's really how we've been conditioned to think. If people really care about each other and love each other and they're showing that, there's something wrong with them. You know, there's something really wrong or they're superficial, but actually... What Solomon shared was what's, what was true. What we did is we had to work at it. And we just had to work at it in a way that was being really responsible. 
So immediately, you can imagine if you had adopted 55 children by saying that you were going to be the director of the school. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty outrageous thing right to begin with. You know, we know what we go through to adopt a child, but 55 in just like one moment? And very often people on the outside, let's say people in Oxford and Lake Orion, the two towns closest to the school, the first way they could relate to us was to dismiss us as the hippie school, which meant that they really wanted to marginalize us right away and also to, you know, to, to make fun of us at the same time. So yeah. that was really why they called us the hippie school. But what they discovered when our kids went into their schools was that they were self-disciplined, that they comported themselves really well with adults. They were interested in learning, really deeply interested in learning. They cared about the teachers and the students, you know, the kids that they were with and the ones that were leading it. And so it was amazing to hear, I would say, let's say at the very end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, there were enough kids that have gone from our school to Lake Orion and Oxford public schools that we were now called the School for Gifted Children. <laughs> they didn't know how to categorize what they were seeing because they saw empathy as a strange kind of intelligence. They saw responsibility as something they had to control in order to get the kid to be responsible for something that they didn't care about, right? So they saw the school so differently that the only way they could explain what was going on, because many of the counselors and many of the teachers would say, oh, do I have an Upland Hills kid in my class? You know, I want two. Are there three of them available for my class? I mean, some of these teachers were having these conversations, not the administrators, but the teachers were. Why? Because these kids had these characteristics. They were mostly very humble. They were patient. They were authentic. They were responsible and they cared about each other. And that blew them away. So they were, you know, they didn't know where they came from. So all of a sudden the hippie school was the school for gifted children. Where did they get that? Well, we said something that Buckminster Fuller had given us. All children are born geniuses and they're degeniused by unfavorable circumstances. That's the Monty Python sketch, right? Yeah. So that's Bucky saying it. And we said, let's test that. Let's see if it's true. Is every child that we have said yes to, can we find a gift in every one of them that they are geniuses? And we did. We discovered it. We did discover that there were kids that we couldn't work with because the damage had been so severe for so many reasons. And you would know that certainly on the spectrum of emotionally impaired children, there were parents who brought kids to us saying, can you work with this child? And we would go through the regular process to see whether or not it was possible to work with that child. But often we would have to say, no, we can't, not at this point. But there may be a time when we can, because we have to protect the whole. And we've given a tremendous amount of freedom and responsibility to even the four-year-old. And your child has these issues, as you well know, this would not be the right place. An autistic 
child who was on the extreme end of autism was not able to be with us. But a child who had Asperger's syndrome, as we know it today, then there were many right from the very beginning. Oh, yes, we can work with these children. Child who had Down syndrome. Oh, yes, we can work with David. We can work with the Megara, and we know they will be teachers. That's a paradigm shift. So just by giving you those characteristics of the kids, to me, those are the characteristics of the new leaders. Any leader that we have today, whether it's a head of state or whether it's a mayor or whether it's a governor or whether it's president of the United States, doesn't matter what it is, if they have humility, patience, authenticity, courage, grace, responsibility, empathy, they're good leaders. If they lack any one of those things, they're not. Turns out all of those things also make them just really great people to be in relationship with. <laughs> and, um, just, just amazing human beings, period. <laughs> So how do we begin to make this shift? How do we start to do this? How do we start to implement this so that this kind of amazing, beautiful new paradigm can really start getting rooted in our world? I think it starts with first what Phil said, that I have to let go of any judgment of me being in a love-based relationship, that there's something wrong with that. And I have to let myself feel, that's what I want. And, and my goodness, when it gets real with most human beings that I've interacted with, that's what they want. That's what they want. So I think that's the first step, is acknowledging, I want this. Then the second piece is, I have to do my work with that. And, and I'll say again, my work starts really somatically. And the reason I say that is because I have to be aware of the contractions that happen in my body, in my physiology, that take me out of that coherence, that take me out of, that put me into dysregulation. And the more I practice being able to notice, oh, there's that grip, oh, there's that contraction, oh, there's that tenseness in that moment, that when I actually start practicing becoming aware of that, and then slowly there's an intervention that can happen, including just, I now take a deep breath in that moment. That's the choice point. That's the power point of choice. So that internal somatic work, I think, is also a foundational element for it. And doing that starts to open up more spaciousness for me to be able to hear when my beloved says, you just came in here and took over the scenario. And my first response is, I didn't. The more I'm able to start feeling in my body, the more I can go, oh, you know, yeah, I did. I'm so sorry that I did that. Those are the parts, the, the, the granular elements that start walking me towards being a being in those new paradigms. So it can begin within us right now, even as adults. Even if we're not brought up in this beautiful modality or this beautiful way, it's becoming more and more, if you will, the conduit for this to come through so that we are those living examples. I think kind of like Phil was saying as well, that we're modeling that. We're modeling that for our children. We're modeling that for other adults, for each other. 
So the more that we're in tune with what's going on in here and we can look at exactly what you're saying when we have the constriction to say, what is that? And take the deep breath into that so that we are responding with one another instead of just reacting. Beautifully said. And, and even with our children, and, and my daughter continues to be one of my amazing teachers in this area when she gives me that look of like, dude, you're in so much control right now that I am able to soften and go, ah, you're right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Here's what I'm after, you know? <laughs> and also when she gives us a look that we have to see, oh, we're the ones that modeled that for her. Right. That's we, where we, she learned that look. <laughs> so, so to that question, and I, then I'd love to really turn it over to Phil, because I'm curious to hear what you'll say too in the pregnant moment is uh, our own rewiring work that we cannot shift paradigms without unlearning and disenmeshing from all of our old patterning and habits that are this, any version of the same old thing of life as usual, that in order to really ride this great turning with grace, we have to be as, as present and compassionate first with ourselves and each other as we can be, mm. with the, the unraveling process, surrender, and, and perhaps even become a friend of the unknown, of the mystery, and take it from the inside process to our most intimate, to those concentric circles of how it's always amazing to see the innovation of the creativity, the possibility that emerges when we allow space for that and have our, our willing intention on that. And I love these basic things that I practice as a paradigm shifter, to bow to something greater than me, not as something separate from that greater thing I'm bowing to, but to bow to source, the great mystery, the, the big magic, God, goddess, great spirit, whatever name works for you, but to have an intimate relationship with that one as it lives in all beings, including all of nature. Because this is a collective turning. It's not just any I's idea. It's an us. And the other is, I love this, that the Dalai Lama has said that to focus on what you do want. So not focusing on problems, not focusing on what we have to fix. That would be more of the old paradigm but focusing on what we do want and then surrender it, that outcome, and put everything in that pool of light where everything is in a state of activation and becoming. That for me is alchemy. That's magic. And that's something I can get excited to wake up about every day. And I feel that that's the kind of enthusiasm that will support us to ride into the new paradigm that is here now. And there's something too that really caught my ear that you said that I think is so essential and it's truly around not even befriending, that's not even strong enough term. It's like developing a love relationship with the present moment. And so when you're saying surrender to the unknown, because automatically the way that we've been hardwired, when something's unknown, we can just get into that fight or flight or freeze response because our brain wants predictability. And we want distraction because that's what we've been taught. 
And when you learn, and that's honestly one of the, the wonderful things, if you will, about what's happening right now is we literally are being forced to go within. You know, we're forced to be within our homes and it's as if the universe is saying, okay, it's time, let's all do our work. And as, as we're doing that, it really is this opportunity to go within and start befriending ourselves and making peace with this present moment where we can breathe into it and soothe that part of our mind, that part of our being. And we learn to show up and be present now. And from this place, beautiful things can unfold. Well, I think you've all got it. You know, that, I think that's right. I think whether it's a Gandhi quote that says, be the change you want to see in the world, or whether it's why do we do hollyhock, because unless we have direct experiences of it, and unless we can really dive into the complexity of it, which means there's always shadow material, as Gabriella spoke so beautifully to, we don't want to be perfect people. There is no such thing. We want to be whole people. So if you want to be a whole person, then you have to be willing to take on the most difficult challenges of this time. And you have to be willing to accept that and in that acceptance be able to live with the darkest possible outcomes as well. And that's becoming whole. So how do people find out about Hollyhock this year? How can people plug in? Well, um, www.trimtab.in is one way of getting there, thanks to Solomon. And so now if you go to that place, it'll go to the website that Solomon and Gabriella and I and others have put together. And also hollyhock.ca, www.hollyhock.ca. Of course, we don't know whether or not this is on or not. And I don't know where all of us are going to be in the next three weeks or four weeks or by July 8th. You know, so we don't know. If we hear from them and they say it's canceled, then all of the deposits and everything will go back to the people. But if it actually does occur, then we'll be there with you and, and there'll be an amazing group of people that'll show up. And really, when someone asks, who is this for? It's really for anybody who resonates with anything that they've heard in this conversation. And you could be 14 years old and 104 years old and we would love to have you come because unless you experience it, you can't really rewire. You can't rewire as a willful thing. In other words, I can't say, I'm not going to smoke. I'm going to break this habit and I'm going to will myself to this place. Rewirement takes a lot more than just that. And if you're with a community and you're in an experience and you're being loved and you're being given permission to be authentic, then the rewirement synapses just kind of are like lightning. And then all the phosphorescent clams in the, or oysters in the bay are rewiring with you. And then, you know, there's seals coming by and rewiring. And then there's orca whales that are out there in pods. In other words, it's happening not just as a part of the process between humans. It's happening through the forest and through the mycelium and through our being together and the awareness being expanded instead of contracted. We're now, as you so beautifully put out, in offered really is that 
we're in a contraction and we're inside. But in that inside, we have an opportunity, unlike any opportunity that we've had as a global species. And coming out of that, we can be absolutely transformed human beings. And then Hollyhock would be the ideal place to find yourself on July 8th, because then you'd have the experience of how to do it. And you would have a, an appreciation of that kind of freedom that is unlike anything that could have happened before COVID-19. Every time you got on a plane, every time you took a, a train or a bus or left your home, I mean, we'll all have an awareness of how precious this freedom is. And actually this interior freedom is far more precious than any other one. Because if you can always carry with you a certain kind of equanimity that belongs to us, meaning our family or our friends or this depth that we've created with the staff, if that travels with you wherever you go and whatever you encounter, then the worst thing in the world can happen and that's still there. Okay, so this is happening. That's why in the book, we go into some dark nights of the soul and what it did to us as a school. And that's important because those are some of the most valuable, I would say invaluable lessons. I think that's one of the really essential pieces and essential messages of this work, if you if you even call it work, of this unfolding, is that it's not about living in la-la land. It's literally that life is going to continue to happen. And so whether it is a dark night of the soul or whether it is some joyous celebration, it's all about encompassing, it's all life. And so being able to hold that from a place, like you're saying, within, where we do have equanimity, where we are grounded in the sense of pure love and connectedness that gives us the resilience to deal with whatever shows up in our outside circumstances and to really feel connected to one another and to this earth that we all get through this together. That's the paradigm shift. That's it right there. And the first coherent love-based community is right in our own beings with the trillions of cells, with all of the elements of the magic and gift of the human life, we become that and then it ripples out. So I have a close of sorts connects all this conversation and, and it has to do with Gabrielle and Solomon because I invited them to come when Gene Houston was with us. And I invited Allegra Fuller Snyder, who's Buckminster Fuller's daughter, to come as well. And so I put together this staff that was like, this is the dream staff of the world, you know. So we all came together for a weekend workshop that was Jean's gift to our community and her wanting to see and touch it in a very deep way. We had had her before, but she had never seen the school and she just fell in love. And so I want to just read a sentence from Jean about this time that we're living in. And she says, so my dear friends, I invite you to create a new virus of caring, of a nobility of our humanity that becomes even more contagious than the one dancing in the heavens. And then she goes on to say something like, yes, we have to take all the precautions that are recommended. And at the same time, be bold in your love and constant in your faith that together we will pass through this challenging time. And on the other side of it, we'll look back and realize that we were part 
of an epic time in history when caring triumphed over fear and goodness prevailed. This has been a production of NOCO FM. 